Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we are uh, moving to the last topic in the doctrine of Christ that we're going to cover in this particular theological series, uh, and it is the doctrine of the resurrection. So it is the second part of the work of Christ. We talked last week about the doctrine of the atonement, and so we're going to walk through the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. We're going to do so from a variety of different angles, or at least attempt to. Uh, I, had, I had some quotes I wanted to share with you, and so I did a front and back on the handout. So we'll flip that over at the appropriate time. Let me begin with something that Martin Luther wrote uh, about 500 years ago. Christ Jesus lay in death's strong man's, for our offense is given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore let us joyful be, joyful be, and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of hallelujah, hallelujah. Luther was thinking on the resurrection and the ascension of Christ when he penned those words. He was meditating on the truths that we're going to think about tonight what the resurrection means for us as Christians. Uh, The resurrection and the crucifixion go hand in hand. Nearly every Easter, I think every Easter season that I've been here at Wilkesboro Baptist, I've preached on those topics, the, the death of Jesus, what it means for us, the resurrection of Jesus, what it means for us. And so what we're going to try to do tonight is unpack that from some theological implications, what that means for us as Christians, and then... How can we trust the resurrection? Um, The resurrection throughout Christian history has really not been debated among Christians. It's one of the primary orthodox doctrines. From the very first group of Christians, the resurrection permeated the communication of the gospel. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, how he was seen, Jesus was seen, rose from the dead, buried, crucified, buried, buried. uh, and then rose from the dead and seen by so many different people, including himself. And that dates back, that hymn in 1 Corinthians 15 dates back probably prior to him even writing the letter. So we're looking at in the neighborhood of 35 to 40 B.C. when that hymn was first spoken, that confession was first spoken by the church. The church throughout history has not denied the resurrection. In fact, the doctrine of the resurrection, as the Christian church preached it, permeated the known world, so much so that Jewish historian Josephus, and you see that quote there in front of you, was relating about the Jesus the Christians preached. Josephus was not a believer, simply a Jewish historian, not long after the time of Christ, and he wrote this, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats, was a teacher of such people, as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Christ when Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them, restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared." Jewish historian reflecting on what the early Christian church communicated. The resurrection permeated early Christian faith, and it still permeates 
our faith today. Let me mention what the resurrection means for us theologically before we unpack it, maybe from the perspective of apologetics, and we're going to look at that in a few moments. What does the doctrine of the resurrection mean for us as Christians? What implications does it have? The Heidelberg Catechism uh, summarized uh, the resurrection this way. First, by his resurrection, Christ has overcome death so that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which by his death he has obtained for us. Secondly, we are also now by his power raised up to a new life. So Christ defeated death by the resurrection. We're raised to new life by the resurrection. Thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. And so the catechism there basically articulates that the resurrection has many theological implications. It's, it's of utmost importance for us as Christians, not only in our faith in Christ, but in our hope for Christian living. Let me unpack several implications. These are not all that I could have mentioned. These are just a handful that I think give us a good grasp as followers of Jesus for maturing in our faith. What does the resurrection mean for us today? Romans 4, 23 through 25, Jesus was raised for our justification. That's the exact terminology that Paul uses. He says we were raised, he was raised for our justification. Died on the cross serving as the atonement for our sins, but the manner in which God could both be, be just in cleansing us from sin and the justifier of those who sinned was through the resurrection. In other words, it affirmed the work on the cross. On the cross, for example, Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, tetelestai, done, completed. And it's one word in the, in the original language. It's an acknowledgment of completion. And, and if we read that wrongly, then we think, okay, well, Jesus' work is done. Really, what we should read that as, that's an affirmation that he knew he was going to be resurrected. In fact, I'm not going to jump all of the, the sermon I'm going to preach Sunday out of Hebrews 5, but Jesus prayed that he would be rescued from death. If you read through Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, you're going to find this, this phrase where Jesus prayed that he would be rescued from death or rescued out of death. And, and he wasn't praying at that point, I don't believe, that God would keep him from dying. He knew that was what was going to happen. He's praying that God would give him victory over death, that he would die and then be raised. And I think Jesus knew, no, I know Jesus knew on the cross that the resurrection was going to happen. So it's a declaration of victory. Let me give you a second implication. It comes from Romans 10, 9 and 10. Confession of faith in the risen Christ is necessary for salvation. Necessary. We must believe, right? Believe in our hearts. We must confess with our mouth. And what's the particular terminology, believing in our hearts? We must believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. To not believe in the resurrection is to not savingly believe in Christ. And, and that has staggering implications for theological liberalism and some of the shifting views on the idea of the resurrection as a miracle. If, if one ignores the historical reality of the resurrection and believes that Jesus was a good man, even that he died for good reasons to, to show us love and, and great things in life, and to use terminology that I'm going to unpack in a moment, he was raised in some kind of spiritual sense, but not in a physical, historical sense. That kind of doctrine 
is not a saving doctrine. In other words, if you hold anything less than what the Bible teaches on the resurrection, that's not sufficient to, to experience salvation. We have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That is a necessary fact that took place 2,000 years ago and something that we have to hold on to in order for salvation to take place in our hearts and lives. So it is necessary for salvation. I've already referenced 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9, the church confession or slash hymn regarding the death and resurrection of Christ, where Paul said he was crucified, he was buried, which was a tremendously important acknowledgement. He, he wasn't just laid around anyway, he was put anywhere, he was put in a tomb, he was raised from the dead. That uh, echoes the same things that we would find when we look at the resurrection stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was put in a specific grave. Uh, he was put in a place that was known not just by his followers but by others, uh, and that undercuts some of the arguments that would arise later about what happened to the body of Jesus. So the early church believed that he, was dead. he died, he was buried, he was risen from the dead, and then he was seen. He was seen by... Dozens. He was seen by all the disciples. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by upwards of 500 at a time. He was seen by James. And then he was seen, Paul said, uh, by me as one born out of due time. In other words, what Paul is acknowledging there is something that the early church held dear, that the resurrection is something that absolutely took place. Uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians 15, another implication, death is swallowed in the victory of Christ's resurrection. Death, where's your sting? It's gone. I mean, one of the things I love about Paul, uh, and Dr. Mike, you and Dustin should love this about Paul too, he, he, he went from theology to worship really quickly. And you see that all over his letters. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's dealing with some challenges to the resurrection that the Corinthian church was facing, some of the church members and some of those outside the church were having trouble with the resurrection, so that's not a new thing that people struggled with. And he started dealing with all of these facets, and it's one of the longest chapters in all of Paul's writing, is 1 Corinthians 15, and he gets to the end of it and he starts celebrating. He kind of gets to, he, he moves to po poems and quoting the Old Testament, and he's celebrating and worshiping because Jesus was risen from the dead. Uh, and he acknowledges that what death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, what he, he tells us is that because Christ rose from the dead, death is not something that you and I have to fear. I mean, I'm not interested in going to my grave anytime soon. And, and I certainly don't look forward to the process, right, of going to my grave. I mean, there are many processes that are, that are quite challenging. I'm going to unpack that a little more in a moment with a quote. But there, there are some difficulties associated with growing sick and dying. There are difficulties associated with dying suddenly. There are difficulties associated with dying tragically. And, and all of those have implications that are hard, and some of you know that even way better than I do. But I just want to remind you, we don't have to be afraid of death because death is no longer an ultimate enemy. The resurrection took care of that. Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus owns it. He rules over it. So we don't have to be afraid. Not at all. Another implication, a last one that we'll acknowledge at least here in the moment, 
is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. God's resurrection power raised Christ from the dead, seated him above the powers, and is at work in us. Uh, the way Paul phrases that is the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is at work in us. So we all know that God's power is at work in us. You know, otherwise, we would not be converted. But the way Paul describes that in Ephesians 1 is he says, the immeasurable greatness of God's power that he works in us, it's the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead with. There are several connected implications for that. One is Jesus was seated at the right hand of the throne on high above the powers. And one of the things going on in the book of Ephesians is the because it was going on in Ephesus, is this struggle with, uh, with the supernatural and, and the demonic connections to idolatries and idols that were taking place in Ephesus. And so one of the things Paul is doing in Ephesians is he's telling us Christ is above all of those things. So he was raised from the dead, he's seated above the powers. So it looks like our world's gone crazy. It looks like there's wicked and terrible evil going on in our world. It looks like people can't speak the truth, whether they're in media or in politics. It looks like all of these things are going on that are in chaos, that are spinning out of control, terrible wickedness, terrible evil. I just want to remind you, Jesus is already above all of that. He rules over it. He's, he is seated, past tense, meaning he's an authority over it. So even though it looks like it's spinning out of control... It's not out of God's control. He is currently effectively leading and ruling over all of those things. That is a beautiful and a glorious truth for us as Christians. The secondary truth is this. And this is the convicting truth. God's resurrection power is at work within us. That's how you get new life. Okay? That's how God cleanses you of your sin. That's how God makes you right with him. That's how God does the work of sanctification in your life. You couldn't go to heaven if God didn't do a work in you. That's why in Matthew 19, the disciples said, well, you know, how is it possible that anyone can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. Right? I mean, you're redeemed, forgiven, changed because of what Christ did in you. Here's what that means for us. In terms of sanctification, why are we still struggling with the sins we're still struggling with? Now, I realize that we're going to still be struggling with certain temptations and, and physical, spiritual, moral, ethical difficulties until the day we die. But what I'm trying to tell you is there's victory because the power at work in us is not our own power. I may not be able to overcome my own sins. Indeed, I can't. But the power at work in me is not my own power. You realize that, right? As a Christian, the power at work in you to bring you into the place of sanctification that God wants you is the resurrecting power of Jesus. God can raise Jesus from the dead and, and him not die ever again. I mean, this isn't Lazarus' resurrecting power. And I, I don't mean to demean anything what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus died again. Okay, Jairus' daughter died again. Jesus didn't die again. He never will die again. He is alive and alive forevermore. That's the resurrection power that's at work in you and me. So the next time you, you struggle, and, and we are all going to struggle, you go to Ephesians 1 and you, you remind yourself that the power that is at work in you is the resurrecting power of Jesus, and God wants you to have a measure of peace, forgiveness, 
and ultimately victory and obedience over patterns of sinfulness in our lives because his resurrecting power is at work. I mean, he, he's not going to lose. That's the point. And that's the power that's at work within us. Glorious implication. Let me walk through some of the, the challenges to the resurrection over the years. So as I mentioned, uh, for about 1,600 or 1,700 years of church history, within theological circles, the resurrection was not really questioned. Okay, whether you're a Catholic or whether you were a Protestant, there wasn't really any denial of what took place uh, on Sunday morning after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. That was not questioned. I'm not saying it was believed by everybody. It wasn't believed by everybody in the ancient world. It was shocking. Dead people don't come out of the grave. That doesn't happen. Resurrections don't normally take place. They're miraculous. They're supernatural. And yet the church held as one of its primary doctrines for 1,700 years, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely something we're going to hold on to. And then, as I mentioned before, and I won't go back and repeat all of the background and the framework, one of the things that took place in the 1700s with the Enlightenment period was uh, people got too smart for themselves, really. Uh, Through advances in scientific technology and and discoveries outside the sphere of theology, uh, there came to be this this mindset that the only things that we could know for for sure are things that we could prove historically or scientifically. Anything outside scientific or historical validation is something that is, you know, can't happen. So essentially what that meant is that the supernatural elements of the Bible were questioned. And talk to any theological liberal, and they're not going to have a problem with Jesus telling you to love your enemies. Okay, that's not where they, that's not where they attack. What theological liberals attack are the miracles. Jesus didn't walk on water. He didn't heal the woman who had an issue of blood. And really, they don't care about those miracles per se. They care about this miracle, the resurrection. Because dead people don't, aren't risen from the dead. And so several groups of theological liberals came along in the 1700s and 1800s and essentially took out the supernatural from their Bible and took out the supernatural element of the resurrection. And many of them would say that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that the disciples made it up. They made it up in order to... Gain a following. Well, that was a really bad way to gain a following because they lost their lives. Okay, and I'll unpack that as one of the reasons to believe in the resurrection. Let me give you an example of one of those particular theologians. Rudolf Bultmann uh, was someone who followed um, Karl Barth in that same region of Germany in the early 1900s. And he he, he said some things like this. We must ask whether the eschatological preaching and the mythological sayings as a whole contain a still deeper meaning that is concealed under the cover of mythology. If that is so, let us abandon the mythological conceptions precisely because we want to retain their deeper meaning. This method of interpretation of the New Testament, which tries to recover the deeper meaning behind the mythological conceptions, I call demythologizing. He's trying to sound smart. And the short end is, he read out of the New Testament anything that was supernatural. Now, he goes on to say, given this approach, or this is the author saying, given this approach, Bultmann could not accept the resurrection as an historical event. For Bultmann said this, the resurrection, of course, 
simply cannot be a visible fact in the realm of human history. As a historical fact, a resurrection would be utterly inconceivable. That's Boltmann's claim. So how does he get around it? Because Boltmann would claim, definitely claim, to be a Christian. I mean, he spent his entire life thinking about theology, writing theology, and wanting Christians to follow his concepts of theology. So here's here's what he finally said about Easter and Christmas. Christ meets us in the preaching as one crucified and risen. Interesting language. The faith of Easter is just this. It's faith in the word of preaching. It's a fancy get around. And basically what he says is Christ is raised in some kind of supernatural way or some kind of uh, extra spiritual way, but not really physically, historically raised from the dead. And the only reason that Bart and Boltmann and others among theological liberals, the only reason whatsoever they held that view is because they started with a presupposition that miracles can't happen and supernatural events can't take place. Okay? And so then the, the, the pushback to us or, the, or the, the question of us as Christians is are we ludicrous for opening up our Bible and reading in the New Testament that Jesus walked on water and that he broke you know, bread and fed 5,000 and that he rose from the dead? Are, are, we, are we just silly, small-minded people for believing that a resurrection could take place? And I don't believe that at all. I'm going to give you some reasons why. Six reasons why the resurrection of Jesus, as described in Scripture, is something that we can hold on to and not lose sight of. Six reasons we can believe in the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection best accounts for the empty tomb. Even the religious leaders in Jesus' own day acknowledged the empty tomb. Did you catch that? The Pharisees and religious leaders. The ones that sent guards, okay, they sent guards to the tomb because they feared that the disciples would steal the body of Jesus. Because the topic of resurrection was something Jesus had said openly to his followers on several occasions. On some of those occasions, his own followers questioned him and argued with him, Peter in Matthew 16, because Peter didn't want Jesus to die. Why talk about resurrection, Jesus? Let's just talk about a takeover. Hold on, I've got a sword. Let's let's go kick out the Roman Empire. You're the Messiah. I'm going to follow you to death. Let's Let's not talk about death, so we don't need to talk about resurrection. No dying, no resurrection. Let's just go here. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because you don't have in mind the things of God. Jesus had openly talked about the resurrection. The religious leaders sent a guard to the tomb. And when the whole thing took place... Jesus wasn't there anymore. They paid off the guards and said, "We, you know, you fell asleep. The disciples came and stole the body, the empty tomb, while while you were sleeping." And they paid off, they paid off the 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 supervisors of the guards so the guards wouldn't die for falling asleep on duty. Even the religious leaders acknowledged there was an empty tomb, folks. There's still an empty tomb. Okay, there's there's not ever been evidence. For the body of Jesus found. And let me assure you that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, if they could have, right, if they could have found the body of Jesus, they could have stopped Christianity in its tracks. 
They wouldn't have had to worry about Peter and, and James and John preaching in Acts chapter 4 because they could have showed the body of Jesus and he's not really raised from the dead. So the resurrection best accounts for the empty tomb. Uh, that leads us to number two. The body of Jesus has never been accounted for. Occasionally, you'll see some news headline from some gossip column or sometimes it's a bigger news organization that says, Oh my goodness, we may have found the tomb of Jesus and the body of Jesus. Nobody's ever accounted for his body. I can promise you they're not going to. Uh, even, if, even, if, even if there was any hope that they found some body, I mean, they're not going to find the body of Jesus. It's not in the tomb. And, and it was never accounted for. So there's an empty tomb, and the body's not accounted for. And this isn't just, by the way, let me, let me articulate something. I'm not just giving you theological reasons. These aren't just arguments Christians have come up with over the years. These are facts attested to by skeptics. These are facts attested to by the people who don't believe in the resurrection. There is an empty tomb. There is no account for the body of Jesus so far. Uh, there is a body of Jesus, though. And one day we'll see it. It's just not, not in a grave anywhere. Uh, number three, if the disciples took the body, then it means that they died for a hoax. So there are several theories that have come out over the last probably 1,500 years. There's a swoon theory that says Jesus really wasn't dead on the cross, that he just kind of passed out, they put him in the grave, and he, he walked out of the grave. Okay, That's the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever heard. The Romans crucified people for fun. Okay, This was what they did. They didn't mess up when it meant killing people. Okay, even if he wasn't fully dead and he walked out of the tomb, his appearance walking out of the tomb would not inspire anybody. Okay, because he would have needed help and I mean, needed to be nursed back to life. That's not the Jesus that appeared to the disciples. That's not what they testified to at all. They testified to something completely different. On top of that, he didn't have his he didn't have his garments with him. Uh, Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, put it this way, uh, and I won't get the wording exactly right, but the myrrh that would have been used as a, 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 on Jesus' body would have taken the clothes, the grave clothes, and would have actually uh, kind, of, kind of sealed the clothes to his body. They would have been very difficult to get off. And so the fact that clothes were found in the, in the tomb indicates that the disciples didn't take any time taking off the clothes of Jesus, the, the, the bed clothes, the shroud or whatever was there, they wouldn't have done that. They would have just taken him as he was. Why are there clothes that are, that are talked about? Why, why are there clothes talked about in the tomb? Well, the reason is they didn't steal the body. Uh, they wouldn't have stolen the body because all of the disciples, save one, died a martyr's death. The only one that died of natural causes would have been John on the Isle of Patmos, and he suffered immeasurably on the Isle of Patmos and prior to that as, a, as an apostle. Every other apostle died specifically articulating the resurrection as the reason that they were followers of Jesus. Now, there have been plenty of people over the course of human history to die for a lie. Okay? But the people who die for a lie die believe, thinking that they're believing the truth. Kamikaze pilots in Japan, terrorist bomber, bombers, suicide bombers, they don't think they're believing in the wrong thing. They don't knowingly, they're not knowingly holding on to a lie. 
they're believing that what they're going to die for is the truth and is real. All right? It is well within, you know, normal conceptions for, for you to say the disciples genuinely believed in the resurrection enough to die. That's exactly what happened. So the question is, why did they believe in the resurrection enough to die for it? Why did all of them believe in the resurrection enough to die for it? It wasn't a hoax. That is absolutely unrealistic uh, that the disciples would have taken the body then died for a hoax. Let me give you a fourth one. This is one of the more fascinating found in the gospel accounts. The first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were not legally able to testify in court. So nearly all of the gospel accounts are all of the gospel accounts. While they're not clear, while they're not clear is not the right word. They're not the same story. One of the complaints by skeptics over the years is that you have a different account in Matthew than you have in Mark, than you have in Luke, than you have in John. They're not really different accounts. They just get different perspectives of the different accounts. You would not expect the exact same story from any eyewitness. In fact, what's, what would make you skeptical is if the eyewitnesses gave you the exact same story, word for word, statement for statement. And what you have in the gospel accounts are perspectives. And you have those perspectives because you have Mark looking at Peter's perspective, Matthew looking at his own perspective, Luke looking at the perspective of, of others that testified to him, and John looking at his own perspective. They're different perspectives. You would expect there to be nuanced differences. They get none of the major facts different. All, in all of the accounts, the empty to, there's an empty tomb. In all of the accounts, there were witnesses to the tomb. In all of the accounts, those, Jesus appeared to his followers. All of those things are right. Maybe the, the specific order or how they articulate who it was was a little different here, but it's just because it's a different perspective, not because they're factually inaccurate. But here's the key. In all of the accounts, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, in, in our enlightened culture today, that's not a... That, that, okay, women were the first witnesses. But in the ancient Jewish culture, a woman cannot testify in court. Legally. They wouldn't hear her testimony as a legal testimony. So, so just... Put this in your minds for a second. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are making up the gospel account as they go, and they're writing down, hey, you know, here's what happened. Jesus' body, you know, we, was raised from the dead, and, and we want everybody to believe in Jesus. If they're making it up and trying to convince a pagan world, a Jewish world, that Jesus rose from the dead, why would the first witnesses to the resurrection account be people that could not testify legally in court? Why in the world would they identify women as the first witnesses? Well, they identified women as the first witnesses because women were the first witnesses. It's just the way it was. It's one of those matter-of-fact things that it doesn't support the case, not in any uh, overt sense. Certainly wouldn't have supported the case to Jewish men, not, in, not in, as, a, as a validation. They might not have even thought that that was a relevant detail. I think it's a gloriously relevant detail, ladies. For starters, ladies were the first witnesses of the resurrection, not the disciples that failed him on the night of his crucifixion, but ladies, followers, were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. That's a glorious truth. And then the, that fact is an affirmation that the authors of the gospel accounts are just simply telling us what took place. 
They're, they're not making things up. They're not making things up to try to make their bolster their case because that doesn't bolster their case, not in, not in the context in which they wrote. I'll give you number five. This is one of the biggest ones. The drastic change in the disciples validates the resurrection story. They weren't the same. I mean, Peter was willing to fight for Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, but then he ran away when the Roman guards showed up. When you find them in the upper room, they're scared. You know what they're scared about? Who's next? They're going to crucify Jesus. Well, we followed Jesus for three years. They know me and they know you. Uh, that's, why Jesus, that's why Peter denied that he knew Jesus. He was trying to hide his identity. Why? Out of fear. He didn't want to be next. He didn't want to be dragged in front of a, uh, a court. He didn't want to be crucified. He didn't want to be killed. None of the disciples did. But what do you find like 50 days later in the book of Acts? You don't find disciples hovering in a room frightened and scared. You, you have them preaching publicly um, and, and saying things like, well, you tell me if it's right or wrong that we stop preaching the gospel. We're going to do what God tells us to do. In Acts 4, they prayed after being uh, arrested, prayed and said, God, thank you that you counted us worthy to suffer for your name. That was their prayer. When was the last time you prayed that? Not, not judging you, I'm just saying. Well, they were changed. They weren't the same people they were 50 days before, in, before the resurrection. They were, they were totally different. How about this change? Paul. In the book of Acts, he was murdering Christians, arresting Christians. In the end of the book of Acts, he's preaching Jesus and being beaten for preaching Jesus. Wrote half the New Testament. Proving that the Christ was Jesus. How does that happen? How does Paul go from a terrorist who's taking the lives of Christians to someone who is proclaiming Christ? What, what took place? What changed? Was it power? As some liberal theologians would have us believe, he just wanted to have his place in, in history and have power and influence over a, a newly found faith. Baloney. I mean, it, 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 there was no power involved in Christianity until Constantine. And we can debate whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Good in some ways, bad in others. But nevertheless, there was no power involved in Christianity for the first 300 years of Christian history. Paul certainly didn't have any significant power and influence, not in the cultural world anyway. Uh, and he, he even struggled in the own Christian world. I mean, he and Peter are having debates about, you know, how to treat Jewish Christians. I mean, it, it, there, there's all this turmoil and tension, even among the early Christians. But why is it that Paul's preaching Jesus? Because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He saw the risen Jesus. He's changed. He's not the same. So that drastic change is an absolute validation of the resurrection. Let me give you the last one, or the last one that we'll talk about tonight. There are others. The rise of Christianity is a powerful witness to the resurrection. Powerful witness. Not only the rise of Christianity, but the advance of the church. So just think about this for a second. We're in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, several thousand miles away from Jerusalem, Israel. 
on a winter night, 80 or 90 folks of us in here, talking about the doctrine of the resurrection. Few of us in this room have any Jewish heritage whatsoever. So there's not a familial lineage between the events of 2,000 years ago, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and what we're dealing with today. And yet all of you are here wanting to learn more about the doctrines of the Bible and particularly the doctrine of the resurrection. And we sang, On Christ the Solid Rock We Stand. And you come out on Easter Sunday and worship and celebrate with us. In fact, we worship on Easter Sunday, which is another, uh, uh, it's not on the list, but it's another real affirmation for the doctrine of the resurrection. Why did the early church switch days of worship? We don't worship on the Sabbath day. Whatever our language sometimes tells, sometimes the language we use, we worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday. Why did that change? Why did Jewish Christians go from worshiping on the day they'd worshiped on for thousands of years and the law day in Exodus 10, or Exodus 20 rather, you shall honor the Sabbath day and make sure to keep it holy. Why did they switch days? Well, because of the resurrection. That's why they switched days. The advance of the church is a glorious testimony to the truth of Christianity. Um, Michael Green, in his wonderful book, Evangelism in the Early Church, puts it this way. Whenever one looks in the literature of the early two centuries, the first two centuries of Christianity, it's the same story. Doctrinal imprecision, even imbalance abounds. Heresy is common. Antinomianism is an ever-present danger. But there is no denying the zeal and sense of discovery which marked the witness of the early church in both their public and private testimony, in both their written and spoken word. It was the utter assurance of the Christians that they were right about God and Christ and salvation. We could add resurrection, although it's not in his book. That they were right about God and Christ and salvation, which in the end succeeded in convincing the pagan world that it was an error. Early Christians simply told what they had experienced. They met Jesus. They knew Jesus. He had risen from the dead. He had changed their lives. In fact, just look around you. Some of you are married to somebody. They're not the same person they were when you married them. They're different. Maybe some of you have the experience of, of, of watching an adult spouse come to faith in Jesus. That's a pretty cool experience. I wouldn't recommend it. You know, if I'm going to do your wedding ceremony, I want both of you to know Jesus before them. But I'm just going to tell you, that's a pretty interesting thing to watch a change take place. Why? we're not the same we're not different and what happened what changed who did you meet well you met you met jesus and, and the only way that works is if jesus isn't dead if he's dead we can't meet him he's not around he's not doing anything for us let me give you three takeaways this is kind of obvious the resurrection changes everything this changes everything if Christ was resurrected, then the only thing that matters is believing, following, and obeying the risen Jesus. Folks, it's crazy. get this. If Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters but people knowing Jesus. I'm going to come back to that in takeaway number three. Changes everything. Changes the way we should perceive the world. It changes the frustrations we should have in our world. Changes the level of peace that we should have. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. That's why the the Paul could write to the early church like they were in charge. When I say in charge, that, they, that God was in charge and they could have a measure of peace even when they had no power. Why could he write that way? Because Jesus is in charge. He rose from the dead. Changes everything. 
You don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried or bothered. Here's the second takeaway. The resurrection gives hope and help to hurting people and to the suffering church. Uh, I came across this quote by N.T. Wright several, several years ago. In fact, I read it at church in 2017 in an Easter Sunday sermon. Uh, but I've given it to you here for you to uh, kind of have it in front of you, and it's worth rereading. Wright says, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing justice and love of one. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche was probably right to say it was for wimps. I prayed earlier for those of us that are suffering, and I know some of you are suffering in ways that God hasn't miraculously healed. Easter gives meaning to that. Folks, Jesus suffered for us to be like us. But he didn't end on a cross. He didn't end in a grave. Oh, he went through that all right. He absolutely went through that. The suffering he faced is more than any suffering any of us could ever dream of facing. He went through it. And he can identify with us. But it didn't end with his suffering. It ended with his resurrection. Which gives meaning. Help. Hope, peace. It, it kind of it helps us know that, man, my life right now, I mean, it, there are times we think it's pretty rotten, it's struggling, it's difficult. Yeah, it is. The world's rotten, sinful, full of wickedness. But Easter means that Jesus is coming back. So it gives us hope. I'll give you the last takeaway. This is the convicting one for you and for me, okay? The resurrection motivates us to help others find life before permanent death overtakes them. So, what do I mean by that? Folks, you have family members and friends, neighbors and co-workers that don't know Jesus. Christ is raised from the dead, and the only way they can have eternal life is through Christ. There's no other way. Being good won't be good enough. Being nice won't be good enough. Voting for the right politician or the wrong politician won't be good enough. None of those things work. Okay? If the resurrection happened, and if we're truly, genuinely saved by faith in a risen Christ, then the only thing that matters is that people that you know meet the risen Jesus. There are lots of reasons Lots of motivating factors for us to be evangelistic, for us to invite people to church, for us to pray for lost people. Not the least of which is love for God and love for them. One of the greatest ones is this. Jesus rose from the dead. And if you really believe that, 
then why are we so silent about it? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be at church where we're talking about it all the time. I mean, we, we try to on Sundays and Wednesdays. I mean, but I mean, as a church, I'm talking about where we are in our neighborhoods and our relationships and our conversations. So I'm going to ask you, church, to find that person that you know needs Jesus and talk to them about the risen Christ. He changed you. Some of you wonder, are they, are they, are they past changing? Nah. God can change Paul. God can save. God can change them. Not a friend I keep praying for. He keeps reaching out. I keep reaching out. We're going to get together one day, and he's going to come to know Jesus. And he's not going to be, I, I believe it, he's not going to be the person if you meet him, when you meet him. Hopefully, I get the honor of baptizing him here one day. Uh, you're going to be like, man, has he really changed? What's really going I mean, how did that happen? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, folks, nobody is beyond Forgiveness and repentance and redemption. So, start telling people about Jesus. Or maybe rather, keep telling people about Jesus. And don't get discouraged. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 